thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Justin. You guys can be seated. Amen. Thank you all, um, again, for gathering with us here this morning. Um, as I've uh, studied and prepared for this morning, and just there's a lot of um, excitement in preaching this text. Um, I don't think it's a text that I've ever preached before, and uh, just had the, the joy, really, of expounding on this text in my own quiet times and devotional life uh, this week, and also in preparation. And uh, what's interesting about that is, is I love it when... Um, I have the opportunity to share, as we do every week, which is the gospel and the good news. There's always good news. But sometimes there are these passages of Scripture that we hit um, that are like getting gut-punched. And uh, last week was one of those passages, as we talked about in Matthew chapter 19, uh, the rich young man. And, and every time I kind of go through that passage, I place myself into the position of, of that rich young man because as I talked about last week, we are extremely wealthy as Americans. We're in the 1% most wealthiest people on the planet, even, even though um, there are people that we would consider to be um, poor, um, they are in many times and in many ways uh, much more wealthy um, than the greater aspect of the world. And we have a tendency to forget that as Americans, but as Jesus is coming to us and we have all of these good deeds that we've accomplished that maybe we could lay before him, and yet Jesus is coming to us, as we talked about in our missional communities on Wednesday night, and is calling us as well to fill in that blank. Maybe it's not wealth, maybe it's not fame, but maybe it is something else. And um, Today, we kind of get to follow up, as I mentioned in that sermon last week, um, to really where Jesus is heading with this whole kind of scene in this episode of what is taking place. And so if you haven't heard last week, I'm going to try to kind of speed you up to where, what, what's taking place. Um, I appreciate the, the, those who kind of put the, the Bible into the canon that we have it. Um, but you need to know something. Uh, the chapters and verses and their splits are not infallible. The words, the scripture is, but sometimes we can break it up so it's easier for us to kind of flow and to know where to stop in our quiet times, right? You, you know, read a chapter a day, keep the devil away, whatever it is um, to help you um, in your relationship with Jesus. But oftentimes there will be places where that split really divides the same story. And that's what's happened here. In um, Matthew chapter 19, again, Jesus is preaching and teaching. Matthew uh, tells us that a rich young man comes to him, and he says, pretty much, I've done all of the commandments. And yet Jesus um, tells him to get rid of all of his stuff, to sell it, to give all of the money to the poor, and then to follow after Jesus. And so um, the, the rich young man refuses to do that, and the Bible tells us that he walks away sorrowful, or that he's, he's grieving because he is, he is willing to do much for God, but he is unwilling to do blank. And many of us can fall into those same categories, but the disciples, Matthew chapter 19 tells us that they were astonished when they heard this. And they were astonished because even the Jews had terrible theology when it came to prosperity. They believed that if you were a faithful Jew, then God would bless you with riches. And so this young man was faithful in many ways, except for he had a God above the one and only true God. He would not give up his wealth to follow that God. And yet, we see here in this passage in chapter 19 that the, these disciples as they are astonished because Jesus says, essentially, that it is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. What's he saying? It's impossible. If it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, how much more impossible is it for a rich man who worships his wealth, who will not give his wealth away for them to enter into heaven? So, astonished, they ask the question then, if a good man who you have blessed, or they think has blessed with prosperity, doesn't get to go, isn't saved, then how can a man be saved? And Jesus tells us in that um, beautiful, beautiful passage there, I think it's verse 23 or 24 right in, in chapter 19, where he says, with this man it is impossible, 
What's Jesus saying there? He is saying a man's work does not make it possible for him to be saved. His obedience does not get him saved or her saved. What Jesus is saying there, it is not on man and his will to save himself, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus again reminds them that it is God who saves. We call this sovereign grace, that he is in control and that he is the one that quickens the dead sinner's heart and draws him to himself. We see this in the passage, and right after that, as Pastor Justin read, we kind of have this dialogue. So what happens, we kind of left this cliffhanger last week, what happens after Peter and Jesus now have this conversation in verse 27? It tells us, then Peter said to him in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. All right? You get what's happening here. This guy will not leave everything, the rich young man. And so he is turned away. But the disciples, if you remember, they have been traveling with Jesus for three years now. They have given up their jobs. In the case of Matthew, the author of this letter, he was a tax collector. He was probably very wealthy. Even Peter, though he was a fisherman and not you know, living the, the lavish lifestyle, but it probably meant that Peter owned a boat. Do you own a boat? If you do, you're my new best friend, all right? Um, fishing is a part of their jobs. This is how they made their money, and they have left it all. Remember when Jesus calls the fishermen? What do they leave behind? They put down their nets and follow Jesus. See, nets trap something, the rich young ruler was trapped in the net of his wealth. This is what I've accomplished. See, what I've accomplished has given me great wealth. For the disciples, though, their wealth, their jobs, their security, their homes, mind you, Peter is married, and he is, I'm, his wife may be traveling with him. I, I have no idea. I wasn't there. Um, but um, we, we see this picture, though, that he is at least gone from her on mission. He's gone from his children on mission, all right? I don't think that means that Peter was a deadbeat dad, but it was the understanding as a family unit that there's a calling by God placed on their lives. So they leave their family. They leave their communities. They leave their home. They, they leave these things to follow after the person and work of Jesus. With man, this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. So Peter says, all right, if this guy doesn't get anything, what do we get? Because we have done this. And Jesus responds, right? He, he gives them this kind of things, those who follow me, um, and in the, their case, that they will be on thrones, judging alongside of him for his name's sake. But ultimately, as it tells us in 19. 29 will inherit eternal life. And then verse 30 happens. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then the Bible translators split it and go to chapter 20. The thing is, look on down to verse 20, 16. What's Jesus say? So the last will be first, and the first last. All right? This is the idea that Jesus is getting inside of these two sections. He's continuing on here. He's going to develop this. Because you can imagine as Peter and the disciples are standing there, they're still a little bit confused. And so Jesus is going to tell a story to explain what does that mean. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Okay? So, Jesus tells us in chapter 20, verse 1, that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That the kingdom of heaven is like a master who owns a lot of land. The master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So, he is probably wealthy. He owns a vineyard. In the Old Testament, a lot of times the Israelites are considered to be the vineyard of God. So, he owns much. He is the master. He is the the ultimate farmer, the ultimate shepherd. He is the, the landowner. He has amassed this wealth, and yet it is time for these, uh, these grapes to be harvested. And so he goes out early in the morning to hire some laborers. 
Now these are considered to be day laborers, all right? Day laborers during this time in Judaism were considered to be very poor and very needy. They didn't have regular jobs to eat, to support their family. Um, This was a a common idea during this time um, that there would be a place near the marketplace where if you were a farmer and you were needing some day labor, that you could show up to the marketplace and there would be men there, maybe women as well, I don't know, but for this sake of this story, it was men, men there who are willing to work because they know if they do not work, they don't eat. Maybe their wives don't eat. Maybe their children don't eat. These men um, were much like the men that we will often see in our city. Some had signs saying, you know, please give, I'm homeless. And then we read other signs that people will put on their signs that say, we'll work for food. These were not just men looking for a handout. These were men who were saying, man, I, I want to work, but I cannot find a job. Will somebody please hire me today? Hire me today so that I can work and so that I can eat. I'm not just wanting you to give me something um, so I can go about my business. I'm not trying to be a professional beggar in this situation. I want to work, and I will show you 12 hours worth of labor to be paid to guarantee me we get to eat today. Man, many of us have seen this in movies, all right? Or even here in Bowling Green, there's some areas that you can go to, and farmers drive up in the summer, and they haul up a bunch of people in in the back of their pickup trucks, right, to go work in tobacco or to plant crops or, or whatever it is. These are day laborers. They cannot find a job, but they are willing to work. The Old Testament even speaks of this very concept, this address is Deuteronomy 24, 15. Listen to what it says. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So we see this even taking place in the Old Testament, that if you can hire a day laborer, man, that he will give you great work, but at the end of the day, because he is poor and because he is needy, you got to pay the brother, right? At the end of the day, pay cash, no tax, right? You're going to pay this guy out because he needs it. He can't wait, and, you know, be paid in the rears. Don't you hate that? Whoever came up with that? It's like, I want to be paid now, right? I've worked, pay me now. I got bills, we got, you know, got to eat, all, all those sorts of things. So um, the Bible tells us here in this passage that the master, he went out and he hired some laborers for his vineyards. After agreeing uh, with the laborers for the Nereus a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So this is like six o'clock in the morning. Six o'clock in the morning, the guy shows up, I need some workers, I need some workers. There's all kinds of men out there. And he's like, all right, you, 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 hop in the back of the camel-driven Nissan, and, and let's go out to the vineyard. Let's get to work. A denarius is, is a, it's a day's wage, uh, maybe equivalent to our, um, you know, whatever minimum wage is for the time. It was, a, it was a good wage. It wasn't like he was trying to slight these guys, so he agrees with the men at six o'clock in the morning, hey, you work for me 12 hours today, and I'm going to pay you the minimum wage, which is a good wage. These men were, we get to eat today right? My kids get to eat today. They get to be taken care of today. I can go home to my wife and hand it over because that's what every good man does every time he gets paid is he just hands it over, all right? And so that's what's taking place here. They mutually agree this is the pay. This is the pay. This was the lifeblood for day laborers. Now, the passage tells us here in verses 3 through 7 what goes on. And going out about the third hour, so this is like 9 o'clock, he saw some others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, uh, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. See, the first group, he tells them, I'm going to pay you a denarius. The second group that comes to work late, he just says, whatever's right, by the end of the day, I, I will pay you. 
And so we see this process going over and over. And so we went uh, going out again in about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So it gets to like 12 o'clock and then it gets three o'clock. And the, and the master keeps going to hire these men who are needy and poor and need to work. And then something really interesting takes place. And about the hour of the 11th hour, so this is like if six o'clock is the 12th hour, then around the five o'clock or so, um, he goes out. It's one hour before closing time, before quitting time, before you, you know, check clock out there. The foreman or the, the master shows up and he sees more men who are needy and who are poor. And he says to them, come work for me. So those men only have to work one hour. The guys have been, some guys have been there since 6 o'clock. Some guys have been there since 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Now, now it's, it's 5 o'clock. It's the 11th hour. It's, it's starting to get down to, you know, we can, we can do this last hour's worth of work. Let's, let's finish strong and more men show up to labor. Very interesting of what goes on from there. It is now time to be paid. They're being obedient to God's word. And the master tells the foreman, he says, okay, here's the deal. We're going to give out the money here. And so I want you to put those who came last, put them first. And the ones who came first, right, six o'clock in the morning, they go last. So the foreman stands there and they've got this big long line and he starts divvying up the money. Starts giving them payday. And the guys who have only been working one hour, they get a denarii. They get a denarius, right? And so the word starts to trickle down the little like gossip chain, you know, the mailman gossip. The, it starts trickling down the line here as they're, they're watching the, the foreman give the guys who just got here a full day's worth of pay. So they're in the back of the line. They've been there since 6 o'clock sweating. And they're thinking to themselves, man, if, if the guys who have only been here one hour are getting a denarius, how much more are we going to get paid? We're, we're sure to get, we could get 12 denarius. We could get paid for 12 whole days for this one day of work. Man, we can't, we can't wait. We're going to feast as a family, we're going to be taken care of for days. Maybe I don't even have to work for the next 12 days. So the handouts come, handouts come. Denarius, 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 denarius. Three o'clock workers, denarius. Twelve o'clock workers, denarius. Nine o'clock workers, denarius. And they're still thinking, six o'clock workers, man, we're going to get this. And yet what happens? Jesus hands them a denarius. The master hands them a denarius, the foreman hands them a denarius. He gives the workers who have been there one hour the same amount of pay as he did those who had worked a 12-hour shift. Notice what they say. You have made them equal to us. The Bible tells us that they're grumbling they're grumbling against the master. They're grumbling against the, the foreman. You have made them equal to us. For some have borne the, the burden of the entire day in the scorching heat. How can we get paid equal? They're grumbling against this master. And what, how does the master reply? Let's look at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did we not agree with me, or did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. What is Jesus trying to teach those disciples? What is Jesus trying to teach you and I? Well, ultimately, 
The master inside this story is who? Is God, right? The master is God, and, and we are the laborers. We are the ones who have been paid. We've been paid by this great master. You know, some of us have, have been following Jesus for a lot of years, while others maybe who are here and gathered with us here this morning um, have been following Jesus for a short amount of time. There is no doubt, though, but throughout Christian history, um, that we have had a history of enduring great tribulations. You know, Jesus is illustrating part of this inside of the story, right? There are these people, man, they, they've been working with him. God frees them from their poverty. He frees them from their need, and, and he, he pays them. And they've been in the scorching heat. I mean, I think every one of us in this room can, can definitely, if we're comparing ourselves to the disciples, um, which the 12, even after Judas kills himself and they, they cast lots for Matthias, it, Christian history tells us that all of these men give their lives for the sake of the gospel, except for John, and they try to kill him in the camp. In early Christian history, we're thrown to the lions. We are forced to fight gladiators. Uh, we are placed in, and covered in tar and placed upon poles and lit at night to light up gardens. This is the history of, of Christianity, that the story of those many who have come before us are, have, have endured great heat. Wouldn't you agree? They've gone through a lot. Yet, like many of us, um, we can begin to complain and to grumble um, for what God is doing and how it appears that he is even giving earthly blessing to people who don't deserve it. Think about it. We're in Kentucky. Other than marijuana, our cash crop is tobacco. Right? Now, I had the privilege of never touching a piece of tobacco as a kid in a farm, and I'm very thankful to God about that because I've never heard any guy, anybody go, I love working in the tobacco patch. All right? Now, when other people say things are awesome and good, that's enticing. But I've never heard anyone on the planet say, man, they love being out there sticking those tobaccos and cutting off the heads of those things. I mean, that they love being out there in the middle of the July heat working in the tobacco patch. But imagine just for a moment, it's Kentucky humidity, 100% of 100%, right? Your sweat is sweating, all right? It's coming, y'all. We had a taste of it yesterday. It's coming. It's humid and it's hot. You're, you're sunburnt, right? You, it, the sun is, is beating down on you and you have been working all day long and all of a sudden your buddy shows up with one hour left to work and, and, and what do we say? Man, it's, it's nice of you to show up when what? When the work is almost done. And imagine just for a moment that, that you're that guy, you're that gal, and you've been working that Kentucky tobacco patch all day long. And the, and the brother gets there, he's been at the pool all day. It's five o'clock, he comes, he works. And you see that old wrinkled up, grisly farmer passing out $100 bills. And he gives the guy that's been here an hour a $100 bill, and you've been there since 6 a.m. You upset? Yes. Are you grumbling? Yes. I mean, that's why at your jobs, a lot of times they don't want you to tell other people what you're getting paid. Right? Because how ticked would you be at your job if you're doing the exact same job, same cubicle, same sort of space, but you find out sometime down the road that, that Susie next to you is getting paid $2 more that you're getting paid, and she's always late, leaves early. But they like her, maybe. 
I mean, this is the setting of, of what is taking place here. Or, or Man, we become jealous of, of people um, in, in the world who are receiving blessings. I think about the moms who um, I've, I've talked to and been friends with who cannot have children. And then they flip on the television, and, and you've got situations where, where you know, unfit women are, are having all these babies. That, man, that... That seems, how does that work? And that's real talk. That really affects people. And man, it makes, it makes them jealous. It makes them uh, hurt. It makes them question. It makes them grumble and complain. God, I'm being faithful. I'm following after you. I'm pursuing you. I mean, I've had a quiet time today. I listened to Joel Osteen before I went to sleep last night. I mean, me and you, Jesus, we're like that right there. We're begging you to give us a kid. But this mama meth has eight. It's real. You work with people, and they're open and honest. Now we get jealous of people within the church. And we get jealous of other churches. We get, we get jealous of what other people have within the church, and, and maybe, man, they're running alongside of you. I mean, I think about, about Mark, our missionary, in, um, who we're going to visit in, in June and to be sharing the gospel with those men and women. And, and he tells me a story about another missionary that's been there as long as Mark and Parker has been. They have been running the race. They've been plowing that gospel in West Africa and no converts. And Mark and Parker in their ministry that God has afforded them to be have seen several and have planted now several churches. Village down the road, nothing. And it's not because the man is sitting on his cell phone looking at Facebook all the time. He is out there plowing amongst Muslim people groups who have never heard the gospel, and there's no fruit. Yet over here, there's fruit. You think there's any tension? I don't know this, brother, but I, if it was me, I'd be like, what's up with that? I'm being faithful. I'm not being lazy. I'm working here. And yet... You know, it's, it's like, man, I want revival to fall in our city. I want people to be saved, but am I, am I okay with that if that happens in the church down the road and it doesn't happen at mission? We begin to, to wrestle with this. We begin to say things like, man, that's where our attitudes begin to drift, don't we? Western students. Every college Western student says this every year, August. They are given something called a what? Syllabi, syllabus. I give it to my students every fall. Here is everything that you're going to be required to do. Here's everything. If you miss my class that many times, sorry, you failed the class. If you don't turn in this stuff, sorry, you failed. Here's the expectation. Here's the expectation. Here's the expectation. Every November, crying students, emails start to roll in. And you start saying things like, sorry. And they're like, that's not fair. That's just wrong. I say, well, I, I told you in August, I told you months ago, this is what we agreed on. A syllabus is a contract. We've agreed on this. And Jesus tells the laborers that morning, right? This is, this is what I'm going to pay you. This is what we agreed upon. He didn't tell those other guys he was going to pay them. He, didn't, he said, I'm going to pay you something, but he didn't tell them what he was going to be paying them. They had an agreement. It wasn't that the, the master was unfair. He was very fair. Am I the only one that gets jealous of deathbed conversions? I guess I'm the only one. All right, check, please. Thank y'all. Let's take up an offering, though. We got to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> offering. You know, let's do it. Let's cut out communion. We're taking up an offering, all right? Pay no attention to the man behind the green curtain. All right, yep. I get jealous of deathbed conversions. I mean, think about it. Now you all will. <laughs> See, I've called, I've led you to sin. Think about it. You get to live your life however you want to live it. Jesus saves you in your last breath. Can he do that? Yes. Does he do that? Yes. And if it's your mama, granny, 
Daddy, amen. I'm not jealous of that, right? You're like, please save them. You're begging. But if it's the Joe Smo out there that you don't know, I'm jealous of that life. There was a man who confessed to, he was a pedophile. He serial killed, what, 17, 18 people? Eight, most of them. Mr. Jeffrey Dahmer, right? In jail. Becomes a believer. Same heaven you get. He got an apartment in the mansion in the sky. Mess with anybody? He ate people. I like I love meat, but I'm not tempted for that one. Right? Never a temptation of mine. And yet we see inside of a prison cell, this man has shared the gospel. He begins to meet with a pastor. He's being discipled. He can't go anywhere. The man is on death row. They, they tried to kill him once. He lived from it. They killed him the second time he was attacked. I mean, this is a wretched, wretched soul by all intense purposes. And if Jesus really saved him, he's saved. I mean, this is ridiculous grace. This is lavish grace. I, I had a friend this week who just... Man, grip my heart to hear them say this this week, that they would never follow a God that would so easily forgive somebody. Yet that is the God that we serve. That is the, the God that, that comes to us, and yet we, man, we, we feel this drift of man being, being jealous toward things. Uh, um, I've been following Jesus a long time. Man, I've been faithful to you, Jesus. Man, I, I, I preach the gospel. I disciple people. I, I, I have a quiet time. I've been through experiencing God I don't know how many times. I, I, I read these books and, 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 and I share with people, and yet this is the pain that I get in this life. Cancer. A miscarriage. Death of a child. A spouse. See, we expect bad people to get those things. But when we believe to be good, we expect good things. I thought following Jesus would make my life easier. We often do this by what? Comparing our faithful work to the faithful work of others. I'm doing more than he is. I'm doing more than she is. I'm being more faithful than they are. Isn't this what I am owed? These are my rights. I deserve this. The money, the respect, the knowledge. Acknowledgement. This is what's taking place in the hearts of these brothers. As they sit here and watch, we've been laboring all day in the scorching heat. And we get the same reward when it's all said and done as those who just came in. Now, as one of your pastors, I want to make sure that I want to teach you to be good Bible readers. Whenever you read a parable or a story that Jesus is telling, we often get really drawn in at the beginning. But it is always the end portion that is the most important. Case in point, the story of the prodigal son is not really about the first son. The story of the prodigal story, why you hit all of that at the very beginning, is for the father at the end to be lavish and gracious told both, right? It's about the son. It's about the prodigal God, not the prodigal sons. That's what that story is about. But we, man, we love to tell these sappy stories and sing Christian songs about the prodigal who has come home. It's not, it's not about that. It's about the God who welcomes, seeks out, kills the fatted calf. In a very similar way, that's what's taking place here. Don't get so caught up in the laborer's story that you miss what Jesus is ultimately trying to get here at the very end. Again, read verses 13 through 16. But he replied to the one of them, Friend, I'm going to, um, I am doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for the denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Get this. Underline it if you have your own Bible. Circle it, scribble over it, whatever. I choose to give to the last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first shall be last. See, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced one of the greatest struggles inside of American Christianity is the struggle that, they, that, that people claim to, to have a perspective of God, and yet they don't know Him from a biblical perspective. Let me ask you this question this morning. Is the God that, that you follow, is He allowed to do with whatever He chooses with that which He owns? Is the God that you follow... Is he able to to do whatever he wants to do on this planet, in the universe, throughout the the universe's plus infinity, that God, the God that you claim to follow, the God that you claim to serve, the God that you claim who has saved you, is he a God that can do whatever he wants to do with what belongs to him? And, And here's the key thing. Everything belongs to him. Even you, even your creation, your death, that everyone on the planet, that we must get back to a a big picture of who God is in this understanding that God can do whatever. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And and, and many times people say, amen, yes, that's what I believe. But when you really begin to press into that and how their lives are reflective of worshiping that God, you will many times find something much different. When you build a theology and a belief system around man, and his will, and his desires, instead of God and his character, you and I are heading toward trouble. I mean, do do you believe a God? Do you follow a God that says in Romans chapter chapter 9, verse 14 through 23? What shall we say then? Is this injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it wasn't on the work of the rich young ruler. It wasn't on the work of the laborers. It was on the character and nature of the the master to say to these people, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. For this is the purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. will ask a question. Just like it does in Romans 9, 19. You will ask me then, why does he still find fault in me? For who can resist his will? Jesus' response. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? In essence, why have you made me a cup? Why have you made me a plate? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Who sits at the potter's wheel? Is it you? Is it me? Or is it God? See, this this is great news for us. This is great news that we serve a God who is in control. The, the laborers, see, what had happened is, is they, that they had forgotten where they had come from that morning. Instead of celebrating that their fellow beggar, that their fellow day laborer was going to be able to eat, they were grumbling and complaining. They were arguing over Who is the greatest? What do we deserve? 
Let me ask you this question. Who's the greatest among beggars? I'm the best beggar out here. What are you going to do to grow up? I'm going to be an all-star beggar. I want to not be able to find a job. I want to be able to stand on a, a corner because I cannot find a job and beg people to give me work so I can be paid. Who does that? And yet at 6 o'clock, at, at 5.55 a.m. that morning, all those brothers are equal. They're all equal. They're all on equal playing field. And the master comes by and says, come with me. There's work to be done. Come with me. There's work to be done. I'll take care of you. Come with me. Follow me. There's, there is work to be done. The reward is greater than the work. And that morning, they were all standing there equal, and God chooses and, and gives them an opportunity to feed their families, to take care of themselves, and to experience great, great riches. And they had forgotten where they had come from. They were more concerned about them getting more than the realization that, that we are all in the same place. And so when Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, what is he saying? Those are the same. The first shall be last. And as soon as you get to the back of the line, what is Jesus saying? You get to come to the front of the line. There, he's saying, in my grace, the reward is ultimately eternal life. And I give that equally, not based on your works, but based on my generosity, my desire to give to these people. Jesus did not need more laborers in his vineyard to get the job done quicker. He went and got more laborers. Because of the condition of the laborer. See, Jesus never forgot that they were poor beggars. He never forgot their impoverishment. He never forgot that, that they didn't have anything. He had never forgotten that. And though why co-laborers had, Jesus never did. It wasn't about their hard work. It wasn't about what they could accomplish on that day, whether it was an hour or in 12 hours. It was never based on those things. It was all based on the generosity of the giver, the generosity of the master, the generosity of God. Jesus illustrates this, that in the words of a lot of old preachers, the ground at the foot of the cross is all level. It's all flat. It's all flat. See, Jesus once again reminds all of us, He reminded them, He reminds us of our spiritual bankruptcy. We are beggars. We're needing to be rescued. We need spiritual food. We are left for dead. We cannot provide for ourselves or for others. Oftentimes in our house, when Ava ever comes to us, and she says, well, daddy, that's not fair. She gets really tired of hearing her second statement. Well, fair ended in the garden. You don't want fair. Let's don't talk about fair. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about mercy. Let's, let's talk about forgiveness. We, we don't want fair. We may, you know, raise our fist at God and say, man, this is not fair. And brothers and sisters, we do not want fair because if we get fairness, then we get death. Who gets the short end of the grace stick? God does. If we want fairness, we get the hell that we deserve. We get the payment. If you want fairness, then climb upon a cross. Because that's what you and I deserve. And yet God shows us and gives us what we do not deserve. I'm going to give you a bunch of addresses here. If you'll email me later, I'll give them to you. We need to understand who we are apart from Jesus. We've all fallen short of God's glory and His perfect standard. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. No one seeks God after our 
after, out of our own will, Romans 3, 10 through 11. No one can understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. All of our intentions are evil and wicked, Genesis 6, 5. Our hearts are deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9. We cannot even do good, Romans 3, 9 through 12. We are born sinners. We are born evil, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19. We're captive to sin and Satan. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. We cannot choose God out of our own will. Jeremiah 13, 23. Our free will is even evil. Job 14, 4. And the payment for sinful nature is death. Romans 6, 23. But what does the second portion of Romans 6, 23 say? For the payment, what we deserve is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death. We do not deserve to be taken care of. Yet the Master walks by and gives us the gift of eternal life. He gives us that gift. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know if you can send more lumber to heaven, just to be really honest. I don't know if you could get a duplex in the, in the great mansion because of your good works. I, I, I really don't know all of those things. But I know this. All of those things are secondary to the greatest gift that he gives all of his children, and that is the gift of God himself. We get the keys to the vineyard. We get the keys to the kingdom. We get God. The master could have paid them what they earned, but he chose to pay them according to their need, not according to their work. He paid them according to grace, not debt. See, the rich young ruler is trying to save himself through good works. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19 through 26 that this is impossible. And here Jesus illustrates once again that these men were not saved by their works, but by God's grace to pour out our blessings onto people who do not deserve it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that we are not saved by our good deeds. Grace is not measured out to us in proportion to what you and I have earned. No, the good news is that in spite of that, we have been shown lavish grace in our spiritual poverty. We have had a great need to be reconciled to God. However, working our fingers down to the bone could never pay for our sin debt. Thus, God, who is rich in mercy, this is ridiculous in mercy and grace, does the work. That was impossible for us to do and meets our every need. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. For by grace we have been saved. See, that's where you're supposed to amen. amen. If you get this. We've we got to stop being so churched up. But may the scripture come anew to us. For grace you have been saved. As a natural workaholic and who grew up most of my life inside of the church, believing I had to be the rich young ruler to earn some way that God would finally show me approved, when I read this passage, for grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, none of those men could boast about how much they labored that day. Because the gift of eternal life, the gift, the same equal amount was given to every one of them. And so in conclusion, the aha moment for me this week is when I've read this passage before, and even in preparation, I've always seen myself as the laborer who's been working all day. It may have suggest something to you and I, or not. We're the 11th hour worker. We're the 11th hour worker. This side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, in 2017, we've had to endure a lot less than those who have gone before us. Anybody want to compare your good works to those of the disciples? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody want to compare your works to early Christians? Not me. The great thing is, is because of the gospel and because of grace, stop the comparison. Stop it. We are here 
because of a faithful legacy before us. And so our desire in following after this Jesus who's lavished us upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, is that we too would leave a legacy for those. And, and there is going to be a person before Jesus comes back, and I don't know if it's a rapture or a hoover, I don't know what it is, but when Jesus comes back to this place, I guarantee you there will be brothers and sisters who will be saved in that very moment or right before the sky splits open and Jesus comes to get his bride. And guess what they're going to get? Eternal life, grace, reconciliation. They would get to experience the, the forever love of God eternally. May we celebrate that. May we pray that Jesus would do those same things. We have way more in common with the thief on the cross than the disciples. Is your life reflective of a God who can do whatever he pleases? I mean that. Do you know that God? Man, that, it's, it is both beautiful and a mystery in how all that works. But that's the God of the Bible. He does whatever He pleases. And do you believe that it is good and perfect? Even if it destroys our earthly concepts, our human concepts of what we think good is and right is. And fair is, see, this story has nothing to do with whether or not God is fair. The story is, is that he is generous in grace. Lastly, maybe Jesus is walking by you today and he's extending an invitation to come and to follow after him. And one day, we will know this great reward. And we're going to be paid, not based upon our work, but we're going to be paid because Jesus has given it all. I mean, do you guys get this? Everything that God has given himself in the person work of Jesus is ours. You're his son's. You're his daughters. Now, you're not Jesus. You're not God. But the blessings of heaven are ours. So may we not seek the blessings of this earth, but we, may we long for a better home. If Jesus is walking by today and he's extending to you an invitation and you do not know this Jesus that I speak of, and he is wrecking you in this moment, he's convincing you of your sinful nature, all that big long laundry list of things I read off, and we would love to speak to you more about that. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If you're a fellow brothers and sister in this room, may we fight the drift to complain, to grumble, to ask questions that can be extremely... God, God is okay with our questions, please, please hear me. But, but let us be careful to fight the drift to become angry at God over questions that we simply don't know. But let's trust what we do know, that he is good. And at some point in time, he walked by and he imputed grace to you. He imputed his love to you, his mercy to you when you did not deserve it, when I did not deserve it. Let's pray together.